Hey guys, when you search for Bible-related stuff, virtually all the results are from Christian pastors and apologists. Yeah, to find real biblical criticism, you need to dig down. Most people never even learn about all the scholarship out there, which debunks a lot of the evangelical claims. Yeah, there's an entire well-funded industry of biased Christian content out there. Our show tries to offer a counter-argument to them, but we rely on our listeners to keep the show going week after week. If you'd like to support the show, please check out our Patreon at www.patreon.com slash Skeptics Bible Project. Thank you to all those supporting us. We hope you enjoy the show. I'm John. And I'm Ben. And this is the Skeptics Bible Project. We read the Bible so you don't have to. I don't care too much for preachers. I don't like to go to church. But I'd hate to meet St. Peter when my body leaves this earth. Hello, everybody, and welcome to the show. This is the Skeptics Bible Project. Happy to be back with you again. How are you, Ben? I'm doing great, John. How are you? I'm doing good. So this is the Josh McDowell evidence that demands a verdict extravaganza. We're on, I don't know, episode seven or eight or something. But um, I think we should just jump right back in. Uh, Last time... Uh, Josh McDowell was talking about the pinnacle argument that you hear from Christians who are fans of his work and other uh, apologists that are like him make uh, the similar argument, which is that the disciples wouldn't have died for a lie. They wouldn't have knowingly died for a lie in the fact that, according to him, they knowingly died um, for their beliefs. Uh, That means their beliefs must have been true because no one would go to their death for something that they knew wasn't true. I think that is a good summary of his argument. Is that do I have that right, Ben? Yeah, I think that was the main gist of his argument. And then we countered that to say, first of all, there are people that have died for things they would have known were a lie. Um, Joseph Smith, we brought up, um, and there's other examples throughout history. And we feel like Josh McDowell is ignoring a major truth about uh, human psychology, something called cognitive dissonance, where um, people are very capable of going along with delusions. And uh, we got into that a little bit. And the other major argument, which just factually refutes him, is that we actually have no idea how the majority, if not all, of the disciples died. Um, All we have is legendary tales from centuries later, um, for the most part, with the exception of James, and we're not even sure um, the provenance of that evidence. So his arguments really fall flat on that subject, but we've talked about it a lot, so I don't want to belabor that. If it's all right with you, Ben, I thought we would just go right into the next section. Yeah, I think we should just uh, push onward. Maybe some of you have heard the name, a lot of people have, Andre Cole. That's his stage name. His real name is Bob Gertler. This guy's phenomenal. And he's referred to as the magician's magician. That's his title. He didn't give himself, the other magicians gave it. And he's the only man who can boast, from what I understand, that he's never been fooled by another illusionist. Well, he graduated from UCLA. And he was challenged to take his expertise as the world's greatest illusionist, a man who can boast he's never been fooled by another illusionist, and to apply his skills to the miracles of Jesus Christ to explain them away as illusion and magic. 
He thought that would be a, you know, an easy task. In fact, I thought that was a pretty good challenge uh, to do that. I wish I'd thought of that. And uh, since he thought it'd be so easy, he accepted it. In the process, he became a Christian. And, and I was with him up in Vancouver, British Columbia a number of years ago. And he started to share with me his testimony, what brought him to Christ, and how he was challenged to take modern illusion and magic and refute the miracles of Christ. And he gave me some of the principles of illusion. For example, almost all illusions are done indoors. Why? You've got to control the environment. Almost all of Christ's miracles were done outdoors, which many illusionists would never dream of doing. And in the process, he said he was able to explain away some of the miracles. But he said when it came to several, he couldn't. He said the main one was the resurrection. He said, Josh, and you need, using all the modern magic illusion and everything, there is no way in all our knowledge today that he could have deceived his followers. He said, Josh, you've got to understand, to do some of the illusions today, you have an 18-wheeler semi-load of just equipment to do one illusion. He said, Jesus had none of that. And he did most of them outdoors. Even the resurrection took place outdoors. And he said, I could not refute it. And it's one of the things that brought Andre Cole to Christ. So, Ben, uh, um, right off the top of my head, um, well, I have several problems with this argument and the logic he's using. And I want to see if um, what you're thinking is the same thing that I'm thinking. So I'll let you start on this one. Yeah, I mean, I see a couple different levels where this becomes a problem. So the first thing that I would just say is that this whole argument only works if the accounts we have of the miracles are actual accounts. Exactly. That was and exactly what I was So it's, it is completely pointless to... If, you, if the accounts in Matthew and Luke are exaggerations of accounts of miracles in Mark, of course... They're going to get more elaborate. Of course, they're going to be like if the challenge is to make a more elaborate miracle, because that's the literary device that you're using. And if your if your literary goal is to prove this person is the son of God or the messenger of God or in, endowed with the power of God, then you're going to construct the most miraculous accounts that you can possibly construct. So that's my first like major um, objection. And then I think like my other major objection is. This may prove, if, if we assume that they are historical accounts, and this illusionist today can't replicate them, that may mean Jesus is the best magician that ever lived, but it doesn't prove anything more than he's just a great magician. And I mean, the resurrection, we already pointed out a lot of the historical problems with that. I mean, if we assume that the resurrection is true, then I think like we don't need a magician to tell us that um, that was something very miraculous. Um, the whole question is whether the resurrection was actually true, and we've shown that historically that's just extremely problematic to claim. You know, in in all of what we've gone through in the first uh, several episodes of our series, he was trying to make the case that what was written down in the New Testament and in the Bible in general is what actually happened in history. He hasn't made that case. He's basically just asserted it. Uh, and then, so now he's just, again, assuming that what was written down is actually what happened. We're taking some pretty big leaps here. Um, we're assuming that the New Testament was written by eyewitnesses. We've shown that not to be the case. 
and then we're assuming that what was written down is actually what happened. He hasn't proven that at all. And so now we're, we're left assuming that these magic tricks actually happened, whether they were real miracles or just magic tricks. Okay, so let's just go with him on this, even though his entire premise is baseless, and say that there really were people recording these, these magic tricks. Well, these type of miracles are recorded elsewhere, outside of the New Testament in other traditions, some religious traditions, some historical traditions. And some of those are miraculous accounts too. Jesus is not the first resurrection recorded in history. Um, so I think you have to wrestle with that as well. And then I guess Josh McDowell's, I'm playing devil's advocate here, I'm guessing Josh McDowell would say, ah, but those uh, are not historically accurate and the Bible for all the reasons I've given is historically accurate. So we're, we're just arguing around in circles here. But yeah, but to Ben's point, if you could show that Jesus really did these things. Um, well, why can't he be like David Copperfield or uh, David Blaine, where every, no one in the audience has any idea how they did that? No one knows how David Copperfield made the Statue of Liberty disappear. Um, but did David Copperfield use real magic? Did he use anything supernatural? Um, no, no one really believes that. Well, maybe some do, but he didn't. And... Um, and then the, the last argument I'll make really quickly about this is that even if you say that, yes, Jesus really did this, um, these quote-unquote tricks in this, the way he's describing it in this magical formulation, well, people really believed in magic then. Magic was a very real phenomenon. Ben talks about this a lot. And there's been a lot of uh, research, historical research on what people in the first century thought about magic. So... Even if Jesus did this to people in, in that time period, they, would, they could say he's a magician, just like uh, Pharaoh's magicians were able to do actual magic um, competing with Moses. And the reason that they were all impressed with Moses is because Moses was able to do things that the magicians couldn't do, but the magicians were still able to do actual magic. So again, I still don't think any of this gets us to where Josh McDowell wants us to go with it. Yeah, that's so funny because I was going to bring up the Egyptian magicians too. Like, does that prove that Egyptian magic was real? Because this guy, could, if he can't change a staff into a snake, then that must be a real miracle as well. Like, I mean, the Bible talks about counterfeit miracles and stuff like that. Like, that doesn't really prove anything. Um, but I think, again, the most basic point that we need to make, and I think this is the most important thing, is just that the accounts that we have are not, reliable historical accounts. So, and and that's the entire question that Josh McDowell is trying to prove. So anything that he's doing where he's using those accounts and treating them as historical is getting a step ahead, ahead of what he's actually trying to prove. And this whole argument relies on that. Like, these miracles are describing actual things that took place, and this guy can't replicate them, therefore these miracles prove that Jesus is real. Well, no, all it proves is that there are miracles that are described in the Bible. Yeah, and I think I made this point on an earlier episode in this series. Um, well, there's a reason that uh, historians will take uh, some things that Josephus says as history and some things that Tacitus says as history, and they reject other things that they say. And one of the criteria they use to reject things they say is when they start 
talking about magic and miracles and supernatural events. Historians don't take those things as literally happening. So if we're going to compare the New Testament and look at it historically, the way historians look at any uh, piece of historical uh, uh, information, um, if you use the same criteria right then and there, you would historically reject the supernatural. I don't think that history um, can get you to the supernatural because it's by definition outside of nature it's which is kind of like outside of investigation i think as the close you can get is that people claim to witness things that appeared to be supernatural um that happens every day and i think i think it can get you that far but i don't think it can get you the next step to actually be a persuasive argument in favor of the supernatural there's like a naturalistic explanation is always more plausible so let's say that his followers claim Jesus rose from the dead. What's more plausible? That Jesus actually died and then his body reanimated three days later? Or that he didn't actually die and it was some sort of an illusion, some sort of a trick, or some sort of a mistake? That happens. That has happened throughout history too, where somebody is executed and they don't actually die. Uh, I'm not. I'm not claiming that this is what happened. I'm saying from a historian standpoint, even if you accept Josh McDowell's entire premise, which we've shown to be faulty, and say that yes, there was actual recordings of witnesses that saw Jesus die and then saw him alive later. My question is, what's more plausible, that a miracle took place? Or that there is some sort of a naturalistic explanation, and by by definition, the naturalistic explanation is always more plausible. And we have literal. Uh, I mean, this week there's a controversy um, where a church claims that um, severed toes were grown back on a foot, and the pastor balked at turning over evidence to after making the claim to. Uh, the media, because he said that they wouldn't take the, no matter what proof he offered, they're not, uh, they're not good faith actors, basically. So, you know, again, you can take any account that we have of people witnessing a miracle and say that, oh, well, somebody witnessed a miracle, it must be, mean the miracle is true. This is not even as good as an account that we have where we can actually talk to the person who gives the account. This is something written years after the event by someone who wasn't an eyewitness uh, thousands of years ago. Um, it's just a complicated process to look at this as like actual evidence. Yeah, and if um, if somebody, we've talked about this before about like the atheist test, like why does God not heal amputees? Well, here's an example. This pastor claims that this happened. And I don't know if it would get me to the point to accept a miracle or not, maybe, but I would definitely accept that something extraordinary happened. If you could prove to me that this person's appendages were missing um, and then at a later date showed the you know fully healthy appendages, um, that would be uh, fairly persuasive. And you know what? They don't have the evidence or refuse to show the evidence. What do you know? Um, so what's the point of the miracle then? Um, you know, like in the Bible, the miracles were actually done um, to persuade. They were done as signs in the Gospel of John. So if the miracles now are just, uh, so people can tell you that it's true so that you'll believe, but don't, but if you ask for evidence, no, that's going a little too far. I'm sorry, but uh, I'm skeptical. Yeah, and I mean, I think that there's a lot of um, literary uh literary usage of the the miracle accounts in the bible too like for example um 
Luke's whole gospel is centered on the coming kingdom of God and the kingdom of God that's going to be enacted on earth. And so the miracles in Luke enact the kingdom of God on earth. So there's going to be no sickness in the kingdom of God, so Jesus heals the sick. There's going to be no hunger in the kingdom of God, so Jesus feels, feeds the hungry. Um, so the miracles also serve a literary purpose that the gospel writers are um, trying to clue you into. Um, and if you are just taking it as a historical account, you do miss some of that literary value that they're, they're um, trying to clue you into as well. Yeah, and I want to um, to just say, uh, Ben and I are not here trying to make the case that the resurrection didn't happen. That's really not what we're doing. We are analyzing the arguments that Josh McDowell is making and deciding whether or not we think those arguments are convincing. I don't think you're, you're stupid or there's something wrong with you if you believe in the resurrection. Um, it's a faith-based commitment, and you are totally within your uh, freedom to believe that and have faith in that, and I, I wouldn't mock it. My point is don't believe things for bad reasons or don't defend your faith uh, with, with bad argumentation. And that, that's really what our goal here is. Yeah, I mean, and I think like whether the resurrection happened and whether the resurrection, the resurrection can be called a historical event are really two different questions. Exactly. Um, because whether it's a historical event deals with like the uh, parameters of history and the way that we gauge historical events. And the other question, like John said, is a faith question. Um, it's not, you're not going to get a, you're never going to be able to get a historical answer to that question that's going to say, yes, the resurrection happened because... Everything in history, everything from a historical and a scientific standpoint is going to look for any other explanation than some sort of miraculous event. Because that's just not the terrain that those, that those uh, levels uh, think on. And that's what I think is part of what gets muddled with Josh McDowell's argument. Um, I think to try to convince people that it is an evidence-based argument when it really isn't is actually doing a real disservice to the way that those people are learning to think and... Um, if you're teaching them bad evidence, then what happens when they find out that evidence is bad? That's actually something that's shattering to the person's faith because their faith is based on a bunch of faulty evidence than on faith itself. Yeah, speaking personally, I can resonate with that because um, as an evangelical reformed Protestant, um, Ken Ham's, you know, as a young you know, child, Ken Ham's creation answers in Genesis stuff was like spoon fed to us all. And I fully accepted all those arguments. And then when I got a little older and I started examining the evidence for evolution, um, I started to realize, wait a second, these arguments are terrible and I can't believe something on like really faulty evidence. And that it was a lot of that type of evidence that really, um, kept me in the faith because I believed it. Uh, I thought that was, those were good arguments. Part of maybe what attracts them to um, Christianity is a like answers that they feel to questions that are easy, like easy answers to questions that they have. Um, but I think that that is um, oversimplification because I don't think that there are easy answers. And I think Josh McDowell provides that in on in one way um, where he just says like, "Listen, everything you believe is based on evidence and fact." Um, and so you can go out and defend it against the evolutionists or against the 
uh, historians because they they're really just not seeing what the facts that are actually there. You know, we see it with like inerrancy as well. Um, it's much easier to have a text where um, there's no ambiguity, where the text just agrees with itself. Um, there's no contradiction. There's no different perspectives. That does make it a lot easier. The problem is that it doesn't align with what's actually there in the text. So you get a lot of like weird other extra textual stuff that develops. It's not just easy, simplified answers. It's a lot more of a complicated, ambiguous process. And, you know, throughout the uh, parameters of Christian history, there have been people that have like taken much more of a, I mean, I think Augustine had much more of a, his view on like the days of creation was a little bit more flexible. Um, I think that like we've talked about C.S. Lewis before and like the way he looked at the Old Testament is like sort of more like mythical lessons to teach us something. Um, I think that there are ways to be less rigid that would be refreshing. Yeah, young earth creationism is a young doctrine. It's, uh, it does not date back. I think it doesn't even date back 100 years. Um, but yeah, I resonate with what you said about easy answers. That was a frustration I always had as I um, got a little bit more knowledgeable growing up in the church. I started to realize, well, all of human history is dealing with really difficult uh, philosophical questions, ex existential questions, and something just seemed kind of juvenile about the super simplistic answers to everything. Um, it couldn't possibly be that, that uh, you know, my pastor had all the answers, but he did. Any question you ask him, like, he knows what happens when you die. He knows why, th why this happened in history. He knows why everybody is acting a certain way. Everything is like defined into these little compartments and he has an answer for everything. And I think I started to become really skeptical about that and saying it's, that's not possible. I mean, there's a reason that the smartest minds who ever lived um, were daunted by some difficult questions that they never got an answer to. Um, and and that, that goes into like every branch of academia, science and math and everything else. And um, it just couldn't possibly be that my pastor um, knows more than all those other people with these answers. And then uh, when you study it, you start seeing that the answers they do give um, are lacking, uh, to say the least. But the second argument or the second line of reasoning here with the apostles and this is one of the stronger ones to me. When you say that here were 12 men, 11 to 12 died martyrs, deaths, for one thing, an empty tomb, the appearance of a man by the name of Jesus of Nazareth. And I think a very fair accusation is, well, a lot of people have died for a great cause. And you know, that accusation is true. There are a lot of people that have died for a great cause. I remember I was out at, um, in San Diego during the Vietnam War where this fellow ran out, set himself on fire and died. He killed himself over Vietnam. What the newspapers didn't bring out from what I understand is that uh, his roommate had a fire extinguisher, but it didn't work. He really didn't plan on dying, but he ended up dying because the fire extinguisher didn't work. Uh, All right. <laughs> I'm sorry, let me just jump in really quick on that point. Um, okay, maybe that's true, but there obviously have been self-immolations uh, where people have lit themselves on fire yeah. on purpose knowing they were going to die. So I don't really understand his point I there. know. I feel like it's... Di <laughs> like It's so disingenuous. He's like it's one anecdotal case of someone that actually didn't plan on, 
on dying, but there and, obviously have been people that have. Yeah, there was a Quaker who burned himself alive outside the Pentagon, or outside of, um, I think it was outside the Pentagon, um, to protest the Vietnam War. I'm, I'm pretty sure he intended to, to die when he did that. And there was also a person in Vietnam, or of several uh, Buddhist uh, monks, that burned themselves alive. You, if you've seen the Rage Against the Machine album cover, you know this. Yeah, so I don't, like, again, this is, just, it's a small point, but, like, it's a deceptive tactic to use an anecdotal case um, where you're, uh, the whole point is saying nobody would do that. And then, of course, we know that people actually have done that. And he doesn't mention those cases. He mentions the one where the guy uh, thought he was going to bring a fire extinguisher. But let's push on. A lot of people have died for a great cause, but their great cause died on the cross. The Jewish hierarchy was having a hard time holding the allegiance of the people. Because it was hard to hold the allegiance of people saying, well, the Messiah is going to come and have hope, but he's going to die. I mean, that doesn't hold any allegiance. So they said, look, we are the Messiah. Israel is the Messiah. We have suffered. And boy, if any people have suffered, it is the Jewish people. It is the nation of Israel. All down through history have suffered. And they said, look, we are the suffering Messiah. We have suffered so much, we have taken the sins of the world upon ourselves, and God has punished us for the sins of the world. So we don't need a suffering Messiah. We are the suffering Messiah. So they started to ingrain in young people from childhood up, when the Messiah comes, he'll be a reigning political Messiah. And you see this in the conversation of the disciples. Do you ever wonder why it was so hard for them to understand what Jesus taught? For example, Lord, is it now that you're going to set up your kingdom? Were they thinking of a suffering Messiah who's going to go across and be crucified and buried? No. They were thinking of a reigning political Messiah. Yeah, I mean, I think that he's misreading... He's reading backwards um, into Jewish history from the second century Judaism. Uh, Judaism. Um, that's really like when the Messianic era started. Um, so I'll just give you like a real like brief overview. So um, the a Messiah means the anointed one of God. Um, it's been used a bunch of different times for a bunch of different things in the Old Testament. For men's as kings over Israel. For priests unnamed historic kings of Israel, uh, specified named kings like Saul, uh, Solomon, uh, Zedekiah, um, and even once for the pagan king Cyrus. Um, it was used for the high priest in the post-exile period, um, sometimes for the ancestors of prophets, sometimes it refers to Israel itself. Um, David was also, uh, like referred to as the Messiah and there was a dynasty that was like supposed to be the divinic dynasty. So like he has a, a kernel of truth in some of what he's saying, but really what happened is in the second century Judaism, um, they were reading back on these old texts and started to formulate these ideas of the Messiah that would come. Um, so in Hellenistic Jewish literature of the second temple period, um, you have like the righteous king who's taught by God, um, the anointed of the Lord. Uh, the day of election for the manifestation of his anointed is coming. Um, and it starts to reflect the opposition to the non-Davidic um, Hasmonean dynasty. Um, 
Enoch reflects some of the Messianic stuff. In Daniel, there's uh, Messianic stuff. But it's all like late Judaism, um, late Old Testament books that start to have this like Messianic um, idea. And by the time of Jesus, um, people were going crazy with anticipation for the Messiah. Um, I think the other thing that he gets wrong is that separation between what um, parts of uh, Messianic literature Jesus fulfilled and um, what parts of Messianic uh, literature Jesus didn't fulfill, I don't think was clearly uh, marked until after Jesus' death when they said, no, he's going to come back and fulfill the rest of it. So the coming Messiah was because he didn't fulfill everything that he was supposed to. Um, so the logical idea was he would return and, f and fulfill those prophecies. So, And then I think there's just also the idea that Jesus is fulfilling Messianic prophecy. We talked about this in our um, Christmas episode. Um, Matthew is the uh, biggest purveyor of this idea that Jesus fulfilled Old Testament prophecies. And what we show um, is that Matthew, the things that Matthew says are prophecies are not actually prophecies. Um, and that Matthew takes them out of context and um, divorces them from their original meaning and uses them in a very propagandistic way to show that Jesus is the Messiah. He says, look, he's doing all this stuff from the Old Testament. So to then make the case, well, look, Jesus fulfilled these prophecies, therefore he's the Messiah, is reading the history backwards. So much of what we know about Judaism at this time is because of Christian preservation. Um, and... Christian ideas are sort of like read on top of the Judaism of this time um, because, again, they're trying to show the traces of the Messianic prophecy. And so you should be very careful reading backwards into history that way, um, I think. Um, I think that there may have been ideas about um, multiple messiahs, but I don't think that his description of the roles of those messiahs is exactly accurate, and I don't think that... Again, I'm skeptical of the idea that these are like clearly marked traditions um, that people would have said, like, this is a role that we're waiting to fulfill and not that like we're reading backwards and pulling out different strands of tradition and saying, see, it's all part of this same line. And this is why they couldn't understand Jesus. He kept saying, I've got to go to Jerusalem. I'm going to be crucified and buried. But in the third day, I'll be raised from the dead. That was so foreign to their way of thinking. And what, what happened was, they were saying, no, Lord, you can't. Don't go there. And they tried to protect him. He said, you don't understand. I've got to do the will of the Father. I've got to go, and I'm going to be crucified and buried. Well, a Jewish young person had no concept of the Messiah dying. And this is why, when Christ went there and he got crucified and buried, they were totally discouraged. I mean, their heart had been cut out. And they just went and hid themselves, many in their own homes, totally despondent. I mean, did you ever think why they were so despondent? If they knew he was going to be raised from the dead, they had no inkling that he was going to be raised from the dead. They couldn't understand that. And this is why it was so hard for them afterwards. They weren't believers. They didn't instantly believe in the resurrection. Even Thomas said, I'm not going to believe unless I put my finger in his wounds. Now, I can identify with Thomas. And Jesus said, stretch forth your finger. See, they were convinced beyond what they'd been taught their whole lifetime. Yes, a lot of people have died for a great cause. 
But their great cause died on the cross. What happened? I struggle with this. What happened that literally changed their lives? For me, I am convinced that what we have here in the Bible is not only what was written down 2,000 years ago, but what was written down was true. This is what Jesus said and what Jesus did. So on like the one hand, he's talking about there's this expectation of two messiahs, one suffering and one reigning king. But then the disciples are only expecting the reigning king. They're not So there's this expectation of the suffering messiah, but they don't realize that Jesus is the suffering messiah. Okay. The other thing that I just like, I, you know, like I hate to keep coming back to this, but if the question is, like, are these historical accounts, we can't just keep treating them like they're historical accounts. So all of these, like, responses by the disciples and how their lives were changed and what they did after the resurrection, all of that stuff is historically suspect. Like, that's all part of a narrative. And and if you're doing a literary analysis, then you need to start separating the Gospels and tell me who, which Gospel you're talking about, which writer is saying what. Like, this is very... This gets into super pastory territory, I think, where he's not even like pretending to do any historical analysis anymore. He's just giving like sort of an emotional um, crescendo. So um, I think those are like my two big problems. Like, if there was this clear expectation of these two different messiahs and Christ fulfilled the one messiah's um, role, then, you know, they would nat naturally formulate that he's coming back to fulfill the other part of the Messiah's role, where he's the conquering king, he's the son of man come in power. Um, if they were only suspecting that he was going to be the son of man come in power, then I don't understand what his argument was earlier, that there were these two messiahs, these two ideas of Messiah that were going all the way back through Judaism. It seems like if it was so ingrained in Jewish thought that they would have recognized this. Um, but no, they were only looking for one Messiah that was going to do both things. I, it, like, I just feel like his argument is going all over the place. Um, but I just don't think that he can keep treating these accounts like they're historical when that's the whole question of what we're asking here. Yeah, it's incredibly circular. You, I think, made the point on a previous episode, Ben, that reading the New Testament can tell you a lot more about the community it was written for um, at the time it was written than it can about the period of time it's describing, right? So when it's talking about um, you know, having Thomas sticking his hands in the wounds, and it's talking about the expectation that uh, the Messiah would have been a conquering Messiah, but Jesus was actually a suffering Messiah. Um, that fits very well, and I think a much more plausible storyline is to say followers of Jesus were being ridiculed that, oh, your, your God died on a cross. Uh, we know this, you know, if you read Celsus, that's like one of the biggest points he talks about. So we know that like a huge criticism against early Christians was like, what kind of Messiah was this? He was just crucified by the Romans. Um, so it kind of makes sense that the New Testament is addressing this and really giving like a, the full court press, trying to um, persuade you that no, the uh, the expectation of the Messiah is a suffering Messiah, and Jesus conquered death, which is why the resurrection became so important. And then, then he's going to come back and then show everybody in, in full power. And you know what? It's going to happen soon. It's going to ha happen while some of his followers are still alive. And I think that's a much more plausible explanation for the text that we have.
Yeah, I mean, I also think it's interesting to just look at how the different Gospels treat Messiah. Like, um, so in Mark, it's a secret. No one's supposed to know he's the Messiah. It's all like wink, wink, like the, let he who have ears know what I'm really saying. Um, you know, we're drawing the disciples into secret to tell them like the secret, you know, I'm the Messiah is the secret. That's the the theory of the messianic secret in Mark. Um, in Matthew, the Messiah is like front and center because Matthew's like whole goal is to prove to Jewish readers, Jesus is the Messiah, or that's like the perceived goal of Matthew's gospel. Um, Luke, I think, is already starting to see the divorce between um, Christianity and Judaism. And so I don't think there's a, there's not the same focus of trying to prove uh, like the Old Testament scriptures uh, were true you know, of Jesus. I don't think Luke really uses that at all, um, if I remember, like where he says this prophecy f- was fulfilled. Very rarely if he does. And then by John, you'd really don't need the Messiah at all because Judaism has been replaced by uh, the God that's eternal with uh, God the Father from the beginning of time that's going to redeem the entire world. So, um, and and all the Jewish uh, festivals and Jewish celebrations are sort of re-enshrined into Christianity uh, through Christ. Um, Christ becomes a sacrificial lamb. Um, Christ is the light of the world. Christ is the water. Christ is the bread of life. So, um, you know, even the Gospels are not, like, consistent with this concept of Messiah. Um, But, yeah, I think that um, it makes sense for early Christians to be dealing with these issues in real time and say, oh, man, like, we need to find proof texts for Jesus being the Messiah, and you get a gospel like Matthew that's filled with proof texts for Jesus being the Messiah. Um, yeah, like you said, the um, Thomas, like, you need a, a, a proof that Jesus is f- a physical body or that, you know, he's although he's walking through walls and at the same time. It, it's all just very, like, they serve certain purposes, these these stories. Yeah, and I uh, off subject a little bit, but I, I uh, resonate with what you said about Mark. I think it's fascinating that Mark is the earliest gospel. So if we are going to try to glean anything historically, we would go to Mark. And uh, yeah, Jesus does miracles, and then says, "Don't tell anybody." It almost seems like an excuse for the community to say, "Well, I don't remember uh, anyone doing any miracles." It's like, "Well, he did them in secret." And was he the Messiah? Well, yeah, but how come no one knew about it? Well, he said to keep it a secret. That's what we find in Mark. And we don't even have any um, resurrection appearance in Mark. Uh, We just have the women finding the empty tomb and then telling nobody. And uh, we've talked about that a lot, but I just think that's fascinating that that's the earliest gospel that we have, uh, a canonical gospel that we have. And then by the time you get to John, I've, I've said this before, but the miracles are all signs that Jesus is the Son of God. But that's a very different... Uh, explanation that we find in Mark. If we go to the epistles with Paul, we have almost nothing about the miracles of Jesus. We just have in 1 Corinthians um, kind of a creed about resurrection appearances, and that's it. Like, nothing else at all. Um, So, I just think most of what Josh McDowell is using is coming from uh, gospels that are the least likely to be historical, and then from, you know, Catholic, you know, centuries later tradition, which is, like, by far the least likely thing to be historical. Yeah, and I mean, again, I think that, you know, on the one hand, the historical quest 
is one that's going to have to look with skepticism on the biblical accounts. Um, now, so so like just taking the accounts as historical is not looking at the history. That's just it's just dishonest to say that I'm doing a I'm looking at the historical evidence and then just taking the gospels as historical accounts. That's not a historical account. If you want to take the gospel as literary works, where you can you can treat them like the literary works they are in themselves, then you need to separate the Gospels, because otherwise you're taking four different literary works and smashing them together into your own literary work, and you're not really analyzing either the history or even the literary works that are the Gospels. Yeah, and I think Josh McDowell here, like you said, Ben, um, like his, his true stripes come out. I mean, he's a minister. He's an apologist. Um, I mean, this whole talk he gives is in, you know, people that grew up in the evangelical church, like we did, will recognize his cadence. Um, he sounds like a pastor. And uh, and this is why it is very persuasive to people that are already in the church, that are already believers. And he's speaking to them in, the, in their language, in the way that they're familiar with. He doesn't sound like a college professor, um, you know, or a historian, and he's neither of those things. And, but he, but he's trying to suggest to the audience that the arguments he's presenting hold weight in the way that a college professor or a historian um, would be presenting evidence, and they just don't. And they're only really per- these arguments are really only persuasive to people that have the confirmation bias, where they already believe it and they want to believe it. Um, I just don't think they are very persuasive at all to uh, to actual historians out there. Now I know that there are a lot of people that were not believers at all that have heard Josh McDowell's talk here or read Josh McDowell's book and have actually converted to Christianity. I'm not denying that. Um, I'm not, you know, and that's what I think part of the problem is. Like, if you're going to convert to Christianity, that's fine. But don't do it on bad evidence. When Josh McDowell presents these things, do your own research and see and check it out to see if it's true. That, that would be my only advice. Yeah, I think with anything, you don't want to build a foundation for something on like inaccuracies or falsehoods um it's just not a good foundation i think like i mean in reality the most convincing thing that josh mcdowell said and it's not really a convincing argument but it's an argument that like if christianity helps you in your life if it makes a difference in your life then it's a good thing um i think that that's like you know in reality that's not going to be a convincing proof to another person but that can be a convincing proof to you, and that's really the proof that's the the, the best evidence, I, I think. Yeah, I mean, uh, I agree with that. I think there's a certain pragmatism to that. If um, if something is working for you or it's helping you in your life, um, I'm not going to criticize that, that aspect of it. But but again, like I think the whole point of our show is to um, analyze the arguments that are being made to see if they actually hold water. And I, and I think, you know, there's a lot of Mormons out there that, um, you know, converting to Mormonism have completely changed their life. Same thing with Islam or Hinduism or, or Judaism um, or any other uh, religion or belief system. There's, there's a lot of things that have really helped people that, that are not actually true. You know, believing in uh, homeopathic medicine, um, homeopathic medicine is bullshit. However... There are a lot of people that have um, 
you know, from, I guess, because of the placebo effect or whatever, they just believe that it's helping them in some way and they feel a lot better and then they become a lot happier. Um, you know, I guess that's a deeper question, whether or not that's a positive thing. For me, that's not a positive thing because I care about what the truth actually is. Um, and I also don't want to delude myself. I don't want to believe something just because it makes me feel good um, or gives me some kind of false hope. Uh, I want to follow wherever the truth leads. Yeah, and I mean, I think that there's a danger to, um, yeah, just believing what works for you as well. Um, but I certainly don't think, I, th I think like the ultimate terror is to struggle with the point that um, your religious faith, while it may be justified to you, is going to be, that's a different faith could be equally justified to someone else. So it's not a proof that's convincing, like in the reality outside of just what you believe. There's some good to realizing that your faith is not built on something um, that's so solid that you're going to go out and try to reconstruct the world in its image. Um, and so understanding that when you say uh, you have some inner voice of truth that reveals to you or make, gives your life meaning, that someone of a deeper faith, a different faith, just like John said, could have that same exact assurance. And so um, it doesn't give you assurance that your, your faith is the one true faith. It just means that you found something that works for you. And I do think that there's a danger in... Um, looking at it from a purely pragmatic. I mean, I'm sure Tom Cruise would say that Scientology works for him too. It doesn't mean that it's not a crazy, um, even destructive belief. Yeah, I think if as far as you can get with it as a pragmatic approach, then um, he's kind of failed his project here of um, providing evidence that's supposed to lend us to the verdict that the Bible is true, because I don't think he accomplished that at all. Uh, and then we're just left with what any other pastor would say about, well, just uh, your your personal faith and um, how how it will uh, have positive results in your life, um, which you know is counter to what his ultimate point is here. But um, I think Josh McDowell is pretty much wrapping up. Let's see what he has to say here at the end. And I would stake the lives of the apostles on that. They went through the test of death to determine their veracity. So I can hold this book in my hands and I'm convinced I can trust it. It is God's word and it's a rendering of God's heart and mind and his truth about each one of us and our relationship with him. It is the word of God. I can trust it. And it concludes. So, um, I think it's interesting how he concludes. He holds up the Bible and say, I believe it's the word of God and I can trust it. Well, there it is. He, after, you know, we've done, I don't know how many episodes we've gone through, you know, his over hour long uh, conversation here. And really the best evidence he can provide is that he believes it. Um, he goes on and on. He really is so strong on this um, disciples die, the apostles dying for uh, what they believed in. And I think we've broken that down enough. It's just not that persuasive. So um, you're just left with, I believe it. Yeah, it's very frustrating um, 
the way he just sort of leaps to conclusions without actually proving them. And it almost felt like at the end he just tried to stuff in even more things that he didn't prove. Um, did he even ever address that, that it, whether it's – I mean, even if he proves that the account is historically reliable, whether it's the word of God, I don't think he ever addressed or tried to prove um, – he does like hinge it all on his belief, which he did a few times through this talk too. He sort of like goes through the evidence and then it says, "Well, therefore, I can believe that it's this." Yeah, well, I know. I noticed that too. Pretty subtly, he would slip that in there, um, you know. And and I can believe it. He would throw in there, and I'm like, "Well, wait a second. I mean, that goes against kind of the whole premise here, right?" Yeah, it's sort of a subtle shift that he does, um, like a you know, unintentional honesty. Um, but yeah, I mean, to me, the biggest problem was that he just didn't prove any of the things that he set out to prove. And even the standards, like we've beat it to death, I think. Um, even if we grant him the things that he thinks he proved, I don't think he, that that gets us to the point of his conclusion. Um, so his his argument fails on two levels. Um, the... He doesn't prove the things that he wants to prove, and even if he proved those things, it doesn't get to the absolute uh, conclusion that he's trying to get us to. Yeah, and I think that you know his major point that he keeps coming back to about the apostles dying for a lie. You really, he he really would have to prove how Christianity is unique in that, uh, because if Christianity is not unique in that, if you could say the exact same thing for other faiths, then again like his his argument is fundamentally shot down right so he needs to be able to say christianity is unique and he didn't really do that he just said um that you know that, well they died for something they would have known was a lie or whatever but yeah but they, but we have given a couple examples of uh where that happens in history and uh he doesn't seem to address that and um i was kind of disappointed i i was really expecting something a little bit more difficult for us to address here. Uh, now, maybe uh, if we went through the book page by page and uh, we would find some better proofs in there. Um, you know, we've talked about Lee Strobel. He's another Christian apologist, very similar to Josh McDowell. I think they're friends who Lee Strobel came out later, made a book, uh, wrote a book called The Case for Christ. And that's another extremely influential book. And we're going to do the same thing at some point. Uh, we'll spare you guys from that now. You're probably uh, sick of this topic. But uh, in a few episodes uh, from now, we'll probably want to get into Lee Strobel's arguments to see how they differ from Josh McDowell. But I know he also harps on this exact issue about the disciples dying for a lie. And um, maybe his will be more compelling or more difficult to wrestle with. Um, I mean, I think, you know, think C.S. Lewis is a little bit more interesting, a little bit more difficult to wrestle with. I think someone like Alvin Plantiga, um, the Christian philosopher, is much more difficult to wrestle with. And that's something we should take on at some point also and examine his argumentation. Um, it's a little bit more in the weeds and a little bit more um, academic. But um, what we're trying to do on this show is just you know, take the arguments that Christians put forward as these are the best evidences to support uh, why we believe what we believe. And I mean, I think that this whole like um, notion of apologetics is like a pretty modern phenomena. Um, and so part of what we want to do is sort of expose the problematic um, nature of just like apologetics in general, that it's like trying to 
I mean, I think my main problem is that it sort of uh, devalues the actual, um, like, the science that it purports to traffic in. So, like, apologetics when it comes to um, the science of, uh, like, geology or uh, ecology is totally, like, fraudulent science. And I feel like the historical apologetics for the Bible ends up being really bad history. And so um, I think this whole cottage industry of apologetics is just, um, it's a problem. And I, and I think it just creates Christians who are not taught to think critically. Yeah, and um, this whole time we've been recording these episodes, we've been um, hearing from you guys and uh, been getting emails and uh, conversing with people on social media. So our next episode, we'll, we'll wrap up this whole series. Um, we'll talk a little bit more about some of the arguments that Josh McDowell made, but we're really going to go through um, how Josh McDowell has impacted Christians and non-believers alike. And, um, and we'll kind of go through some of the responses we've been getting from our listeners. So until then, this is the Skeptics Bible Project signing off. Good night, all. The Skeptics Bible Project is a John and Ben production with intro music by John Lobker. Support us on Patreon at patreon.com slash skepticsbibleproject and follow us on all social media platforms at Skeptics Project. Got questions or comments? Email us at skepticsbibleproject at gmail.com. Ooh.